You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 17th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. This is a major political and therefore also constitutional question and crisis that this country would fall into and the, the Brexit crisis is bad enough so that would be just another crisis on top of it. As the UK Supreme Court considers whether the proroguing of Parliament was unlawful, my guests Stephanie Bolson and Mary Dechevsky will discuss this and the day's other news, including who will succeed Angela Merkel and will they be as well liked by Brussels. We'll discuss the explosion that rocked a highly sensitive Russian biohazardous site this week. And we'll also hear about changes afoot for next year's Eurovision Song Contest. Plus, under Switzerland's system of direct democracy, which decrees that plebiscites may be held around four times per year on issues ranging from gambling laws to the building of minarets, This constitutes enough public attention to bring the matter to a national yes-no vote. How Switzerland's public are trying to tackle climate change. I am Markus Hippi. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Mary Dechevsky, writer for titles such as The Independent and The Guardian, and Stephanie Boltzen, UK and Ireland correspondent for Die Welt. Welcome both to the programme. Today, the UK Supreme Court has begun considering whether Prime Minister Boris Johnson's proroguing of Parliament was unlawful. The session will take a number of days to hear all sides, but Stephanie Boltzen was in attendance at the court itself earlier, Stephanie, what was taking place while you were there? Well, the hearing just started this morning, so there is, uh, it's, it's a very early stage. What was interesting was more what was happening outside. So the Supreme Court is um, situated just opposite the House of Parliaments in the heart of Westminster. Uh, and there was a lot of protesters in front of the court, and uh, the protesters were as split as the country. So there were, were one half of the protesters saying, um, we need these courts to defend democracy, call Parliament back, so Parliament couldn't do their work and scrutinize Brexit. And there were the other ones who were saying, um, actually, what judges are doing is trying to undermine democracy because they want to um, to to veto our Brexit vote. So anywhere you go in this country, it's split. This court case is being followed around the world. Stephanie, what, what does it mean for the way Britain is being viewed internationally? Um, well, I think um, there is, of course, the big, 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 big question of if the courts did decide, and we do not know in any way what way the court will decide, whether Prime Minister Boris Johnson has lied to the Queen. And if that would be the result of the hearing uh, at the Supreme Court, if he would have to resign. So this is a major political and therefore also constitutional question and crisis that this uh, country would fall into. And the, the Brexit crisis is bad enough, so that would be just another crisis on top of it. Mary, I, I know you follow international press as well, obviously, Russian press, for example. How, how is all this being viewed internationally? 
Well, I, I don't get the impression that it's reflecting very well on the state of British politics. Um, the UK was already getting a very bad press internationally, generally, because of the mess over Brexit. Um, I think it was less the fact that the, that opinion was polarised than the fact that the the British really weren't getting their act together. And the thing is that, as seen from abroad before all this, um, I think the UK had a certain reputation, if not for doing things in sort of very... Um, orderly way for getting things done and that the system allowed things to be to be be done because it was quite flexible compared with other countries with written constitutions and very set ways of doing things the idea was that uk was relatively flexible and so it could sort of it, it could get around things that other countries couldn't necessarily get around now all this has been completely exploded mm -hmm. um, and the result is that i think we're, we're being regarded if you know, i see the mood as be as going from one of disbelief at the start after the referendum vote through a degree of anger that the British weren't getting their act together now um, to almost writing us off dismissively when they're not laughing at us. Uh, Boris Johnson and his government have been testing the limits of law. Do you think, Mary, that there is still something positive in all this? Do you think Britain can learn something from all this? Is there the, the positive aspect that in the future rules are going to be hopefully clearer? Well, I think there's already um, quite a lot of pressure in certain quarters um, for having a complete rethink of the non-written constitution, of maybe having some sort of constitutional assembly and considering... Um, putting things down in black and white, like, of course, um, most countries have. Um, but I think one of the biggest changes which is really demanded from all this is less to do with that than to do with our electoral system, because at the moment we have we have complete conflict between the party system, which isn't reflecting um, opinion in the country at large. But it seems to me that any pressure is coming from the um, towards the possibility of a written constitution, rather than coming for an overhaul of the electoral system to make it more representative. Well, we'll be definitely following that story over the coming days. But meanwhile, Boris Johnson soon undertook a chaotic and politically humiliating trip to Luxembourg yesterday. His arrival was met with anti-Brexit protesters and culminated in Johnson shying away from a podium speech alongside Luxembourg Prime Minister Xavier Bettel. Here is some of what Bettel had to say on the debacle. Our people need to know what is going to happen to them in six weeks' time. They need clarity, they need certainty, and they need stability. You can't hold a future hostage for party political gains. So now it's, it's on Mr. Johnson. He holds the future of all UK citizens and every EU citizens living in the UK in his hands. It's his responsibility. Your people, our people, count on you. But the clock is ticking. Use your time wisely. Have you seen anything like this before, Stephanie? Uh, it's It's been quite extraordinary, but I must say, and that might surprise you, I think what the Luxembourg Prime Minister did was absolutely unacceptable. He should not have done that. Um, Boris Johnson was in, in, in Berlin in August visiting Angela Merkel. I happened to be... Uh, 
covering this visit. I was in the chancellery. There were also protesters outside and they did the press conference inside. And I don't think it was a very clever idea in the name of the EU27 because in that moment the Luxembourg Prime Minister is uh, representing the whole of the EU27 to embarrass the British Prime Minister and put him in such an awkward situation. I'm And I'm not... I don't know. I mean, this is something about Luxembourg and the Luxembourg politicians. They are quite good at doing, doing this kind of stunts. I think it was a mistake and it was not necessary and it doesn't help. Mary, do you agree? I actually do tend to agree. Um, I, you know, I would say as a sort of footnote, um, how difficult should it be to mess up a trip to Luxembourg of a few hours? I mean, really, you know, that that, that, that shouldn't happen. I also think maybe the British were, um, were in part responsible. I mean, less for Boris Johnson not showing up and um, giving, the, giving the podium entirely um, to his Luxembourg counterpart. Um, but the way diplomacy is supposed to work is supposed to ensure that these sort of things do not happen. And so the whole thing should have been planned and fixed in advance to avoid any sort of pitfalls. Um, I also think that the, um, the way the Luxembourg Prime Minister spoke... I don't think it reflected terribly well on him because you sensed um, a feeling of anger and a sense that he was not completely in control of what he was saying. That he, you know, it didn't seem to me that this was staged anger. It seemed to me that he was speaking off the cuff in a way that really didn't reflect very well on him personally or on his office. And I don't think I'm speaking there as any defender of Boris Johnson. Um, it just didn't sound like the way somebody in that sort of office should and behave. I, I happen to I have been several times to this office, the Prime Minister's office in, in Luxembourg and I have interviewed Jean-Claude Juncker several times it is a very very small place I mean it's literally you walk into the door of the Prime Minister's office and there are a couple of metres and then you are already on the pavement <laughs> so they knew what they were into when they set up the, the, the microphones that um, Boris Johnson he wouldn't have had a chance to be heard Luxembourg's Zabil Bettel indeed didn't hold back. But at the same time, in international relations, in international diplomacy, is it still good to sometimes just say things as there is, as they are? Well, I'm, I'm actually quite a fan of doing that. But I think you have to, um, you have to, as it were, everybody has to play by the same rules. We've now got very used to the way Donald Trump behaves. And I think the rest of the world is actually responding and dealing with Trump rather better now than it did when he first came to office. I also think there's been, maybe partly as a result of that, there's been quite a freeing up of um, diplomatic language and diplomatic communications, including through social media. Um, but I think it depends on people recognising what the rules are. And I think that's what one of the problems yesterday. And also you have to have in mind, he in that very moment spoke for the EU27, mm -hmm. because this is the EU27 negotiating with Britain. Who gave him the authority to represent the EU27, Germany, Austria, Greece, in this kind of way? I think this is absolutely unacceptable. Stephanie Bolton and Mary Dichevsky there will be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monaco's Yolinka Fab with some of the other stories we've been following today.
Thanks, Marcus. Israel is voting in the country's second general election in less than six months. The Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, called the election after failing to form a governing coalition after the vote in April. Final opinion polls put his Likud party neck and neck with his centrist rival, Benny Gantz. The head of NATO says he's extremely concerned that tensions will escalate after an attack on Saudi oil facilities. Jens Stoltenberg also said Iran was destabilizing the whole region. The US has accused Iran of orchestrating the attacks, but this has been denied by leaders in Tehran. And as you've just been hearing, the UK Supreme Court is considering whether the country's Prime Minister Boris Johnson broke the law when he suspended Parliament. MPs aren't due to return to the House of Commons until the middle of next month, which is a little over two weeks before the Brexit deadline. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Jolene. This is Monocle's House View. I am Markus Hippi, here with Mary Dzhevsky and Stephanie Boltzen. Let's move on to Germany, where rising political hopeful Jens Spahn, one of the country's CDU conservative politicians, tipped to perhaps one day succeed Angela Merkel, hasn't been mincing his words about the EU. Spahn said in a recent interview that instead of just, we should do it speeches, it should be, we are doing it. Spahn is advocating less describing problems, more solving problems. Stephanie, if I may start with you, who is Jens Spahn and does anyone in Germany agree with him? Jens Spahn is one of the rising stars in the CDU, so in Angela Merkel's party. He ran uh, last December for um, following Angela Merkel in the uh, as the head of the party. So Angela Merkel has resigned as head of the CDU. She will resign if the next regular election is in uh, 2021. She will run, then resign, will not run again to be Chancellor of Germany. He is a very interesting, very uh, effective minister. He's now Minister for Health. He belongs to the conservative wing of the party and that's why he's quite successful with the basis base of the party because um, the, the Angela Merkel is accused of having led the CDU too much into the center ground politics. He's also interesting because he is openly gay. So on the one hand, openly gay, um, but at the same time standing up for very conservative values of the CDU. But he, when he ran in Hamburg last year for the um, leader, uh, the top position in the CDU, he became third and a very low turn, a very low number of votes. So he is a rising star, but I think he's still quite a bit away from getting the top job. Mary, what do you think of Jens Spahn's criticism of the EU that we should be hearing more we are doing it speeches instead of we should do it speeches? Well, um, it's quite difficult for me to judge whether the, w- w- how far this was um, frontline politicking because I rather suspect that he would not be saying that if, as um, Stephanie said, um, he didn't have his eye eventually on the top job. Um, this sounded to me um, as though it was coming from somebody who saw himself as a future leader of Germany, a future big player in the European Union. Otherwise, why say that? Um, and I suppose that, that 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 also explains why I'm slightly critical of it because it's all very easy to say that, but he's not in a position um, to make that happen um, either now or in the next couple of years. Is, is this a question about the way the European Union communicates communicates at the same time? Obviously, there are successes, but people people may not be aware of them because Brussels is trying is, is struggling to explain what's happening over there. Do you think people should be kept more up to date of what actually is happening in Brussels on a daily basis? 
I think in Germany, uh, if you want to, you can be uh, uh, up to date very much about what is happening in Brussels because there is there are more than I think 150 accredited journalists in in Brussels. There's a lot of coverage. I think this 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 quote by Jens Spahn is targeted at something else. It's targeted as a at a, a frustration and anger among CDU voters that Angela Merkel only managed in her 14, almost 14 years as a chancellor, European problems. And it's an interesting one, I think, because it is saying that Germany should take more of a leading role in Europe, not being reactive, but re being active. And that's, a, that's for Germans a real cultural shift because Germany never wants to be a leader. And now a CDU, high-ranking CDU politician is saying we should become more of a leadership nation. And that's, that's an interesting one. Let's continue then to Russia. Moscow has been downplaying an explosion that took place this week in the area of Koltsovo in Siberia. The blast caused a fire covering 30 square meters and it injured one person. But it's in the news because it didn't just happen anywhere. It occurred at the State Research Center of Virology and Biotechnology, usually known as Vector. This is a site that holds one of the only two remaining samples of the small smallpox virus and diseases such as Ebola too. Authorities have denied that any biohazardous material was released as a result of this blast. Mary, could you tell us what this vector site is and should we be concerned? <laughs> Well, um, as I think most of the news re reports pointed out, it's um, one of the biggest, one of the most important and in principle one of the most secure um, laboratory centres in Russia. And like um, those sort of um, defence establishments in Russia, um, it's quite a long way from other places. You know, Russia's got a lot of space and so um, it tends to put places like this um, outside big centres. This particular one is um, in the region of Novosibirsk, which is the sort of central um, Siberia. I wonder, though, at the same time, whether, you know, it's so easy to fix on things at that happen at almost anywhere in Russia and put the worst possible gloss on them. So you understand why people will say, well, people will find it hard to trust the Russian authorities when they say, well, actually, this was a gas explosion in a part of the complex that was being um, that was being renovated. Um, you know, gas explosions happen. We've seen that we've seen them all over everywhere, um, all the time, especially in winter, and especially when repairs are being done. Um, they said it wasn't in part of the complex that holds the, um, the, the, the 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 sensitive technology and the viruses. And of course, the if that was being said by other people mm -hmm. in other countries, then you might tend to give it more credibility. But at the same time, recapping some recent headlines, we have heard a few cases of hazardous materials being at the centre of explosive incidents in Russia. Earlier this year, sailors were killed when a nuclear-powered submarine suffered an explosion, and soon after that, an arms dump holding 55,000 artillery shells went up in smoke. Do you see a pattern? <laughs> 
Well, it's always easy, as, as I say, it's so easy to seize on the sort of negative news from somewhere w- which has um, an ageing infrastructure on the one hand and a huge credibility problem on the other, um, going way, way back through Soviet times, but currently sort of in the news because of the Chernobyl anniversary and the um, television series that was uh, that, that was attached to Chernobyl. So that sort of thing is in the forefront of people's minds but at the risk of being accused of the um, the great crime of um, whataboutery um, I'd also point out that some of the some of the worst um, escapes of um, infectious um, material have actually been in the UK we had a huge foot and mouth epidemic that was eventually traced to the actual lab that was that, 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 that deals with these sort of things from from an investigative and research point of view. So I think, yes, it's easy to fix on Russia, but, you know, we're not without blame. And then, finally, on a lighter note... The sound of the UK's 2007 Eurovision entry scoot there. We return to the UK's relationship with Europe now as new regulations for how the nation selects its entrance for the Eurovision Song Contest will come into play next year. The public will no longer be asked to vote for the country's nominated act. Instead, the job will be left to record industry professionals. It's thought that the UK's fairly dire points record in recent contests could be to blame for the update. The UK took last place last year and in 2010, 2008 and also 2003. Mary, I I know you follow Eurovision more carefully than (laughs) Stephanie May. How do you rate the UK's chances next year? Probably dire because, of course, the Eurovision, at least as seen from from an awful lot of countries, looks very politicised. So one of the reasons why Britain probably came last last year may have had something to do with Brexit, may also have had to do with the fact that it was a completely rubbish song. (laughs) Um, Stephanie, do you think the UK could learn some lessons from Germany, for example, when it comes to Eurovision and how to fare better? Well, Germany's not much better. I mean, they, <laughs> I think they won in 1982 and then again in 2010. Uh, they, they, I think they became fifth or something last time around. What, what I find surprising a bit is that um, taking it away from the public means that less people in the UK will be interested. Mm-hmm. And that's not good for the Eurovision. And also, have in mind, um, it shouldn't be so politicized because the Eurovision thing is also something... A, a, a transcontinental fun and that's taken away from the British public a bit that I regret that Does this decision by the BBC actually at the same time mean that that the organisation thinks that the British, British people have been wrong when they've been choosing for their, choosing their favourites voting for their favourites Is well, the public I, not right in this case? Well I think there's two separate processes there's the, 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 there's the selection of the song which has become sort of increasingly put out to panels and things but there's the actual vote on the night, which this is also part, part, partly about, um, and taking that away, just because so what, since there's been a sort of popular vote via social media for the um, on the night, um, it's been much more democratic um, than it has been before. And I think that's a fantastic thing. And I think that the, the idea that it's actually going to become less democratic by being put out to these supposedly professionals, I agree with Stephanie. I think it's terrible. Do you have favourite Eurovision songs? Was it that Scooch track, Mary? <laughs> 
No, I do have a favourite one, and uh, it probably shows how ancient I am, that actually I think the first British winner ever, which was Puppet on a String, was probably the best song we ever produced for Eurovision. Stephanie, do you have a favourite? I quite like the uh, Lena song in 2010, which was Satellite. That was a good one, I thought. Stephanie Bolsen and Mary Dechevsky, thank you for joining us. In a moment, why Switzerland is trying to tackle climate change at the ballot box. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. You've read Monocle's daily email digest. Now listen to the podcast. The Monocle Minute is now in your inbox and in your ears at 6am London time. That's 7am in Zurich. With all the news, views and clever comment you've come to expect from our unrivaled team of editors, correspondents and bureaus around the world. You can fit a lot into a Monocle Minute. Just ask our editor, Andrew Tuck. We cover everything. We cover news, we cover business, we cover fashion, we cover design. And there are sectors that we know very well. Hospitality, aviation, urbanism. Stay in the loop in just 10 minutes with the stories setting our agenda. The Monocle Minute is our essential daily bulletin. Tune in at 6am London time on Monocle 24 and look out for the podcast. This is Monocle's House View. I am Marcus Hippi. Finally today, Monocle's news editor Peter Firth looks at whether a referendum to decide whether Switzerland should be carbon neutral might be a breath of fresh air for everyone. Naming an environmental campaign the Glacier Initiative might have presented something of a communications error. Fortunately for those in Switzerland arguing that an emissions target of zero by 2050 be enshrined in the country's constitution, there appears to be no danger of inertia. After launching a petition for the above, the Swiss Association for Climate Protection has collected more than 120,000 signatures in under five months. Under Switzerland's system of direct democracy, which decrees that plebiscites may be held around four times per year on issues ranging from gambling laws to the building of minarets, this constitutes enough public attention to bring the matter to a national yes-no vote. Will it work? Probably not. There is considerable red tape to overcome before a referendum can be called. Meanwhile, the government made its own pledge in August, which was exactly the same as the SACP target, but with none of those inconvenient legally binding bits. The Federal Council has said that the country's CO2 could be cut by 95% with existing technologies and green energy, but it has yet to unfurl any concrete policies that could make the target. Without the force of law to strong-arm governments to act, announcements of this kind are a load of hot air. That was Peter Firth, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Jungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That is at 1800 London time. I am Marcus Hippie. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>